I'd invite you to turn to Genesis. Genesis, we're going to be back in chapter 29 today. And in fact, um, we're going to look at last week's message from the eyes of two different people. As we looked at last week, as we opened the word, as we were in uh, Genesis 29, uh, 1 through 30, verse 43, we walked through the text and we saw God's incredible providence. In fact, we saw God's faithful grace um, as it disciplines and directs uh, our sanctification. We saw God's faithful grace as it disciplines and directs our sanctification. So that last time we were together, um, we, we noted um, that following God's way despite unseemly circumstances requires principled patience. We noted that because as we looked at God sanctifying Jacob, despite unseemly circumstances, we saw that God's sanctification requires us to reckon with our own nature. We looked at that in chapter 29, verses 1 to 30, in chapter 30, uh, 1 to 43. Secondly, last week, we noted that God's sanctification rewards based on his divine nature. So we need to look at our own nature and we need to focus on God's divine nature. When we look at our own nature, when we recognize who we really are and what we really need, we really need a transformation from the inside out. We have a, a deceitful and desperately wicked heart we are completely unclean, totally undone. We are sinners by birth and by choice. And because of that, we make a motley mess of our lives. That's what we saw in the life of Jacob. Yet, what we noted again last time is though we, are, we can be a fruitful follower, we can be only because we have a faithful father. And that's really sort of the overarching theme of these, these two chapters. And in fact... As we noted last time, from a moral standpoint, Jacob's life is morally debunked. He is a polygamist. God does not condone polygamy. In fact, from the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God created man in his image and likeness, both male and female. And in that context, he says, Therefore shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife singular, and they two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not twelve, they two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate or put asunder, as the King James says. Jesus would then repeat that three times in the New Testament that God's intention is for one man and one woman to be joined for life as partners together of the joint heir of the grace of life. God intends us to be faithful like he is faithful. But the problem is, we're unfaithful. We falter in our faith. We make self-centered and egregiously selfish decisions. We allow pride and and avarice to cloud our judgment. And though we could say that in Jacob's case, polygamy was, quote, 
foisted upon him. I mean, he wakes up uh, after his wedding night and realizes he has the wrong wife. That is true. That was a, a scheme of Laban's to give away the firstborn rather than give away the second before the first. And that was foisted upon him. But after this effect, go, this, this, this thing happens, Jacob makes an, an immediate deal with his father-in-law. If you give me the one I really want, I'll serve you for seven more years. And what we find then in the middle of chapter 29, and we didn't read it last time, but we're going to take time to read it today, is we get into these birth wars where Leah feels like her satisfaction and Rachel feels like their, their worth or their value is in what they can give in way of children. And they have a skewed view of their value. And because of their value is in what they can do and what they can provide, they will go to great lengths to provide what they want for their husband and their family. And what we find here is, again, unfaithful believers, unfaithful people, but a faithful father. And so today, as we look at the text under the theme, God's faithful grace that disciplines and direct, directs our sanctification, what we will see today then is this. God's sanctification requires us to trust our faithful father. If the theme of chapters 29 through really 35 in Jacob's life is God faithfully as a father, lovingly, graciously, and gently growing us in grace and changing us to be more and more like him throughout our entire lives. That's the Kids for Truth de uh, definition of sanctification. Uh, as we look at that truth and that process, we're going to look at it not just from the perspective of Jacob, which we saw last week, but we want to look at it from the perspective of Leah and Rachel and their, their helpers, their handmaidens that become Jacob's concubines. And we're going to see how the process of sanctification actually changes our thinking, which changes our feeling, which changes our living. And that process that happened in ancient days with God's loving grace and faithful uh, paternity still happens today with God's loving grace and faithful help. He's given us the Holy Spirit, who is our helper, who will bring all things into remembrance, the things that God has commanded us through Jesus. He's given us his son who promises, I will never leave or forsake you. He's given us all good things to richly enjoy because he is the father of lights with whom there is no shadow of turning, no variation. He is the ever-living, ever-loving, never-changing one. And what we find in the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah and Laban is a story that's very real, a story that's very gritty, as it were, a story that is full of suffering, sorrow, a story that's full of joy, a story that's full of self-worth, self-value, self-determination, a story that's full of manipulation, circumstantial manipulation, a story that, that's full of uh, trust in the wrong thing rather than the right person. And so when we go through, if we were to look at this and try to just outline it and come up with a 
central morality, what we're going to find is there's nothing but immorality. The only central morality is that God is the faithful father. And, and can I say this as New Testament believers looking back on this story, the goal of this is not for us to try to determine who was right, who was wrong, who was better, who was, who was worse, uh, who's good, who's better, and who's best. The, story, the, the purpose of the story is to recognize that there is only one good, faithful one, and that's our Father. And even in our circumstances today, that like Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Zilpah, Bilhah, and uh, Laban and his extended family and friends, even in these circumstances that, that sometimes are manipulations of our own making, consequences of our own bad choices, even in that, God is faithful. And he provides a way of escape. Paul would put it this way, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, the, the conclusion to bear or withstand, but he will provide a way of escape. If we're to put it in the New Testament or the Old Testament concept, remember Genesis is written to the people of God who had just exited Egypt in a mighty way from God's powerful provision for them. They're literally following him in the wilderness by a pillar of fire at night, a pillar of cloud by day, and encamping around his Shekinah glory set up in the wilderness. This story is being written by Moses and read by his people. And as they look at this, this, they're seeing God's masterful faithfulness and they're looking at their history. And we're going to make some final parallels in conclusion today that should help draw that uh, succinctly. But remember, in this time of wilderness wandering, this people would reject God. The first generation would die in the wilderness. Some two million people that, that exited Egypt some scholars would suggest it's as many as that or more. Most of them would die in the wilderness. Hebrews tells us they died in unbelief. And friend, the, the reckoning that we have today is to, to, to decide, are we going to be true followers of Jesus who submit to his sanctification? That is his change from our thinking that affects our emotions, that affects our living, our sanctification, our change from within that rots or works its way out. God's sanctification then is going to require us to trust in our faithful Father. You see, trust or faith uh, is, is, can be improperly placed. And we're going to find that here in the story. As we walk through the story, I hope that you'll see that faith that eventually is properly placed will have a rich reward. Faith that is improperly placed will have negative consequences. And so we, we don't want to make any moralistic judgments. We don't want to look back on this family and say, well, I can't relate to them because I'm not like them. I'm not a polygamist. No, actually, we're very much like them. We may not have made those choices, but we are sinners by birth and by choice. We are completely unclean. We are condemned already, John 3, 18 and 19, until we trust Christ alone. And so uh, this same generation would see uh, the death by fiery serpent and Jesus would tell Nicodemus in the New Testament that just as Christ or the serpent was lifted in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So our faith must be properly placed in God's provided son, the deliverer, the seed, his salvation. 
and we New Testament believers look back at what Jesus has already done, these Old Testament saints were to look forward to what God would do. Remember our big theme in Genesis? Sin destroys, but God delivers. And his deliverance comes through the seed that he promised in Genesis 3.15. We've already been told that that seed would come through Adam and Eve, and Eve expected her firstborn to be it, and he was not it. So we, we trace the seed from Adam to Seth, to Enoch, to Noah, to Shem, to Terah, or yeah, Terah, to Abraham, and now to Isaac and then Jacob. So here we are. This is the seed. The seed is going to come through this lineage. And now it's time for us to see our faithful father, despite our faithlessness. And so as we look at the text today, I hope that we will, we will see uh, through the lives of Jacob's wives and concubines, God's sanctification requires us to trust our faithful father. Now, I've got two points today and some principles. So this is, again, different than I normally preach. This is what we call an inductive message. So we're going to spend a lot of time setting the stage, and then we're going to come to some principal conclusions at the end. So don't lose me. Let's look at the text together, and I'm going to give you the first point. I'm going to split it up equally between Leah and Rachel, even though the content really is going to discuss heavily on Rachel, or excuse me, on Leah. So we're going to see Leah's developing trust in her faithful father, and we're going to see this um, first and foremost as we look through the text. The second point is just the same. It's Rachel's developing trust in her faithful father. So those are our two points today. I've given you the skeleton and the outline, and you have no excuse now uh, not to follow along. So let's look at the text Last week, we didn't have the time to read the text. Today, we're going to take the time to read the text because this is the most important thing I will say all day long is what the text says. So let's look at the text. We're going to look now at Genesis chapter 29, and we're going to specifically start um, in, let's look at verse 28. So I, I led you up to this point already in the discussion and the narrative. Jacob wakes up. Uh, this is Leah, not Rachel. He, you know, tears out of his tent, confronts his father-in-law, and in verse 28, then Jacob did so, or his father-in-law says in verse 27, if you'll serve me for seven more years, I'll give you Rachel also, just fulfill Leah's week. So give her a week as your wife, and next week you can have Rachel too. Now, Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, so he gave him his daughter, Rachel his wife also, chapter 29, verse 29, and Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a handmaid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, now remember last week I told you that word is a very strong word. It's translated most often as hate in the Old Testament, but unloved is a very good translation, and I'll explain that later as we work through the text. Uh, when the Lord saw, so notice who is looking in on this situation. Who is paying attention? Our faithful father. This is really crucial to our understanding of these birthing wars and the problems that are happening in this context. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. And so what we find is Reuben means look 
a son. Look, a son. And her exclamation or explanation here, the Lord has looked on my affliction, so look, I have a son. God is looking. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And so what we find is Simeon means the Lord has heard. So um, just pause for a second, look up here for a second away from the text. Remember the original issue we had back with Abraham and Sarai or Abram and Sarai? God says to Abram, I'm going to give you a seed and your descendants will be as vast as the stars in the sky and the sands in the seashore. They go for years with nothing. So Sarai approaches him and says, hey, why don't I give you Hagar? Abram makes the bad decision and poor leadership and decides that's going to be a good idea. And what happens? Hagar indeed bears a son named Ishmael. They get persecuted. They flee for their lives. And what happens? She calls God the God who sees me. Here, history repeats itself. Leah is unloved. She gets a son, and she calls his name God Sees. Now, what happens later in the story, in later following Genesis? Years later, God comes back to Abram and Sarai, and he calls them Abraham and Sarah because he's going to bless them a year from now, he says, with the seed, and you're going to call his name Laughter. And Sarah laughs in the tent privately, and then the angel of the Lord, i.e. the you know theophany, probably appearance of Jesus pre-incarnate, says, no, actually you did laugh. And so she goes and she says, God hears me. And so what does Leah name her firstborn, her secondborn? The Lord has heard. Now, these are parallels that just happened past tense in their family history. Probably, uh, I would venture to say, Leah has no idea about that. But we, the reader, we get to see those connections because guess what God is trying to tell us? We see verse 3, when the Lord saw, when the Lord heard, what God is trying to tell us is God hears and God sees. Because God is faithful. We are going to see in the journey of Leah and Rachel, we are going to see a faithful God despite difficult circumstances. So that when you and I come and, uh, together at the end of our message today, we will conclude that God's sanctification requires us to trust our faithful Father. So as we look through the text, I'm going to keep reading here. As we look through the text again, Ask, your, ask yourself the question, are you trusting right now in your faithful father? Is there an area of your life that may or may not parallel this circumstance, but, but is similar enough for you to recognize, you know, my eyes have been on the horizontal. I've been focused on my problems and my circumstances. I've been, I've been moving the machinery of my life to or orchestrate it the way that I think will have the greatest outcome. And God is challenging you like he did Jacob and Leah and Rachel to say, no, 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 don't fix your eyes on your circumstances. 
fix your eyes on me because I'm the one who sees, I'm the one who hears, I'm your faithful follower. I care. That's the appeal as we walk through the text. Let's keep reading. So she goes um, and she calls his name Simeon. She conceives again. She bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Okay, so uh, Reuben, look, a son. Um, Simeon, the Lord has heard. Levi means attachment. Now we see a pattern here. She's appealed to, to the Lord. What is she craving? God saw that she was unloved, i.e. hated. She's craving attachment. She's craving attention. She's craving love. Is that an improper thing to desire? And I hope that's not a trick question. I hope you all say, no, that's not an improper thing to desire. I mean, she is married to the man after all. But even if you, like Leah, are in a loveless marriage, God, our Father, is faithful. He hears and he sees. He wants you to be attached to him. Do you see the text? Do you see the context of the text? This is God saying, look, I, I see you. I hear you. I love you. She names her son attachment. Now keep going. And she conceives again, verse 35 of chapter 29, and bore a son and said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. By the way, Judah means praise. Here is a woman, and I, I don't want to repeat what I know Sean Smith took you through ladies at the ladies' conference, and she did a masterful job. I, we talked about it ahead of time. Um, she was going the same direction that I was going and knew that, and so I'm glad you had a good foundation there. Leah goes from unloved to blessed, but that, that unloved and blessed trajectory that she follows, and we're going to see that as we walk through the text and find its conclusion in chapter 35 in a few minutes. But that process is not, that's just the physical, visible process. The spiritual, internal change in her thinking that leads to a change of emotion, that leads to a change of action, that sanctification, that daily growth in biblical change and godliness is what God is actually after. You say, Pastor, how do I know that in the Old Testament, God was after internal change as he is in the New Testament? Well, for that, we could turn uh, multiple places to Matthew and Mark, where Jesus uh, encourages the Pharisees to understand the, the, the heart meaning of the law. For example, he said, you have heard it was said that you shall not murder. But I say unto you, if you hate your brother, you have committed murder in your heart. Was God adding another level of law there? No, he was clarifying the meaning of the law. When you say, uh, when you say, I hate X, this person, I hate fill in the blank with the name, you are literally saying, I wish they were dead. That is treasonous murder. That is desire to take the life that God has granted someone else and to snuff it out. Jesus says, look, Heart change is what matters. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery in your heart. You see, Jesus wasn't 
adding to the law. He was explaining the point of that law. That God is looking for heart transformation, not just outward action. Leah's life is a life of true heart transformation that eventually also coincides with real life action. I think Rachel is contrasted here. Now, I don't know if Rachel, that that means Rachel didn't have a proper relationship with God or didn't have her faith fixed on her faithful father. I don't know the answer to that. I don't, I don't think I'm meant to know the answer of that, but I can tell you the fruit of their and the consequences of their choice. Either Rachel has a heartfelt relationship with God and her life consequences bring, bring her to an untimely end, or she doesn't and she gets the just uh, desserts of her life of focus off of God. I, I tend to believe the former rather than the latter. I think she does have a relationship with God, but the consequences of her life just pan out. God lets sin come to its full fruition. And we'll, we'll show you that in a sec. All right, so go back to the text. Now, what happens here with the transition? Chapter 30, verse 1. Now, because it says, then she stopped bearing. Leah did. So what happens in verse chapter 30? Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children... Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. What's her, what's her thought here? Her focus is, I want, I think children are what define me. Children is what, having the ability to have children is what makes me special. Um, I know I'm beautiful in form. I got my husband's attention. He's, he, it's the reason why he labored for 14 years for dad. My sister didn't have that, but somehow God has blessed her and not me. Do you see this total self-saturation and self-centered and outward focus? Paul, or excuse me, Peter would, would declare to you ladies in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 to 6 that it is the, the internal transformation of a meek and, and quiet spirit, a spirit that is still and knows who God is, that that is what can win your husband without a word. That is what is beautiful and lovely in the sight of God. Rachel was fixated on her outward nature. Now, we don't know what, you know, the, the, the eye issue, if that truly was an eye issue or if that was a Hebrew euphemism there with Leah. But, but the implication here is Leah wasn't a looker, but Rachel was. And because Jacob was fixated on looks. Rachel was doing everything she could to win her husband by her looks and what her looks could produce. And so what we find here, she envies her sister. What is Jacob's response in verse 2? And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, I am, in, am, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So at least Jacob understands God's the one in charge. Now, why would Jacob know that? Hmm, what about dad? Um, Isaac was, was, a, was a late life birth. Uh, his grandfather was 100 and his grandmother was 90 when Isaac came along. That was physically impossible, except for God's intervention. So he understood what it meant. What about his own life, his own birth with Rebecca, as he's grabbing his brother's heel, so he's told. I doubt he remembers that. But he's, he's born out of the womb, holding on to his brother's heel, and he's, he's told the promise from the very earliest of his age that he is going to rule over his brother. 
And so what we find here is he understands clearly that God is the sovereign one over the womb. I'm going to give an application that will be uh, discussing children in a few minutes, but let's keep going. So what do you think Rachel's going to do in response to her husband? Does Jacob say the right thing? Let's everybody shake our head up and down. Jacob says the right thing. What does, Re does Rachel do the right thing? Rachel does what Sarai did and thinks, hey, the Hagar option, that's probably a good idea. Let's go with the Hagar option. That worked out real well for great-grandpa. And so what, do we, what does she do? Here's my maid, Bilhah. Go into her, and she will bear a child on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as wife, and Jacob her went, went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case. He has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, with great wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister. Indeed, I've prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. And I apologize, I didn't uh, make slides to um, the effect that I should have there to give you the names. Um, Dan, of course, here um, means, let's see here. I didn't, I didn't highlight it. Judge. And then uh, his brother's name means my wrestling, okay? So as we continue going, he says here in verse 9, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid. So does she respond rightly? No, she gets into this negative manipulation war and she gives her husband her handmaiden. He gives her Jacob and, and Leah's maid Zilpah bears Jacob a son. Leah says, a troop comes. So she calls his name Gad, which is basically what that means. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I'm happy for the daughters will come call me blessed. So she calls his name Asher. By the way, notice her response. She's been talking about the Lord. Now she's talking about herself. Now everybody will call me blessed. You know, if it ended with chapter 29, that might have been a more positive experience. Praise to Yahweh. Yehuda has been born, right? Praise to Yahweh. But no, the daughters will call me blessed. She succumbed to a fleshly desire for self-aggrandizement and self-praise. That affects us all. Now, Reuben went in, and now this comes to, um, this comes to the, probably the um, weirdest episode, the Mandrake episode. Um, so let me just, let me just explain just briefly, um, mandrakes were, uh, one scholar, Gordon Wenham, um, says that mandrakes were a perennial Mediterranean plant. They bear a bluish flower in the winter and a yellowish plum sized fruit in the summer. And so in ancient times, mandrakes, um, were, were famed for arousing desire. And of course, this is intimate desire between husband and wife. That was what they were famed for. That is a fable, but that was what they were famed for, okay? Um, and in fact, it's, it, it's such an ancient proverb that it's, it is recognized in Proverbs 7.18, Song of Solomon 7.13, Song of Solomon 4.10, and 5.1. And in Song of Solomon 7.13, 
Um, it, it, here's what it says. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. This is um, the one singing to his beloved wife. And somehow the mandrakes by the door and their fragrance are supposed to uh, arouse a desire for one another. And that's, that was the idea. Okay, so I'm, I'm setting that stage for you so you understand what's going on with the mandrakes here. Because from us, it's like, man, okay, we go to Fry's and we can buy whatever fruit you want. You need a mandrake? Well, let's go get some mandrakes. That's, that's, that's not the point. The point is what the mandrake represented. And you already now see the transition from trusting in the faithful father to getting self-praise and self-worth in what I can do. Okay? And so now let's look at this mandrake war. So uh, verse 14, now Reuben went in, in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she says to her, it's a small matter that you've taken away my husband. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Okay, you can get a little bit of mm, sass there. And Rachel says, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your sister's mandrakes. So we, we can already see here, now Jacob is, is still choosing the one he thought was number one, numero uno in his, in his mind and his eyes. He's, he's living with Rachel. What a horrible choice, by the way. Why is polygamy so horrendous? Well, number one, it breaks God's command. Number two, it breaks relationships. I mean, these are sisters that, that are absolutely at animosity and at odds with one another instead of rejoicing with each other. Instead of enjoying the cousins playing together, now it creates sibling rivalry and double sibling rivalry because the siblings are going to be at odds with one another as well. This is a disaster of epic, monumental proportions. So he keeps going. Rachel says, therefore, he'll lie with you tonight. So Rachel and Leah make a deal. These mandrakes, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, aphrodisiac. So um, I'm going to swap mandrakes for my husband. My husband gets to sleep with you. You get the mandrakes. So here you go. Jacob comes out of the field in the evening. Leah went out to meet him and says, don't even come. Don't even go to her tent because uh, you belong to me tonight. You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. Sounds like a, a, a monetary transaction. This is not the way marriage is supposed to be. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. So here we go again. God enters the scene. Where has he been? He's been there the whole time because he's a faithful father. Remember, he's the one who sees. He's the one who hears. He's the one who receives praise. And he's been listening all along. So he does something for Rachel. He gives her another son. Unfortunately, Rachel doesn't, or excuse me, Leah. Leah doesn't recognize this yet. She says, God, and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So now there's a combination of God's providence and my effort, right? I deserve this. I earned this. I worked for it. See, I get part of the credit here. 
Remember what Paul would say to the Ephesians about our eternal security and salvation? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. It, salvation, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What's going on here? A whole bunch of bragging. I hired my husband out, and thus my husband has given me a wage. Oh, God has given me a but, but I have earned this wage, right? So we go on. And Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son, a sixth son. And it says, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Okay, so Zebulun, as we see there uh, in verse 20, literally means dwelling. I mean, the name is a little bit disputed here, but the upbeat mention of the endowment and honor conveys a positive thrust of the name. So I think she's thinking, my husband will permanently now dwell with me. Okay, Zebulun, my husband will permanently dwell with me. But again, this is, this is a transition here. And then finally, uh, Dinah means judgment or vindication. And so in her mind, God has vindicated her and passed judgment on her sister. And actually, this is indeed what happened. So this text is very explicit. Back in verse 17, I'll make some comments, and then we're going to make some applications and move on to Rachel. The renewed fertility comes from God. Verse 17, God Listen to Leah and she conceived. So again, we see that God was accomplishing his divine purpose amidst this polygamous mess. To Leah's two children, Issachar means wages, like I said, a name that Leah ironically employs to denigrate Rachel's, making her hire Jacob with the mandrakes. And as I mentioned about Zebulun, it's unclear, but the idea here um, is that God obviously is causing her husband to focus his dwelling on her. And the final note of triumph sustained as she calls her name, her daughter's name, Dinah, judgment and vindication. Now, Dinah's going to cause some problems later, um, or at least problems are going to be surrounding Dinah later. We'll see that later. But here's some principles. First and foremost, what are some applications we can draw today? And I only came up with these because for sake of time, there's lots we can draw. Principle number one. Submission to God allows us to triumph over our circumstances and trust in God's vindication. So Leah has a journey here that we're going to find later on. I'm going to close out to today's service in a few minutes with verse chapter 35. I'll take you there in a minute after we talk about Rachel. But what we find is Leah starts well, has an intermediary selfish center, right? but really begins to come around to recognize in her sanctification meter of God's continued presence and growth, that God is the one who actually vindicates. Now, Leah got to see God's vindication, as we will find in chapter 35. Her sister dies an untimely death. She doesn't even make it back to Bethel, where God had introduced himself to Jacob. She doesn't actually get to meet the family. She doesn't really, she gets to meet Esau, but she doesn't really get to understand the fullness of the extent of the blessing. Uh, she doesn't even get to be buried with her husband. Uh, Rachel gets buried in, in Bethlehem, Ephrath. Instead, Leah gets buried with her husband. And so we find the journey and trajectory of Leah and the process here is really showing, the narrator is showing that if you'll trust God, who is the faithful one, 
He will make you fruitful and prosperous. And I don't mean children-wise. I just mean spiritually fruitful, although Leah was certainly children fruitful. But when we submit to him, it, that submission is what allows us to triumph over circumstances. That doesn't mean the circumstances of sadness, sorrow, and suffering don't go away. You, you still struggle with them. If you've been maybe like Leah in a, an abusive situation or abusive relationship where you're unloved and denigrated, this, the feelings of hurt and pain never depart. I'm not trying to minimize that today. The text isn't trying to minimize that. The text is maximizing, though, God's faithfulness despite the bitter circumstances of a sin-cursed world. And friends, if you have been sinned against, that is not an excuse to reject the God who hears you and sees you and deserves your worship and praise. Do you see the path and the pattern of Leah? God is saying, I see you. I hear you. I am worthy of your praise. I am giving you uh, something to maximize your dwelling. I am your dwelling. You see, friends, like we read in Revelation today, one day we will be without sin and sorrow and suffering in God's presence. The second truth here is waiting on God's timing always creates less personal consequences to us. What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to find, especially in, in Rachel's case, had she not given her handmaiden away, perhaps life would have been different. Circumstances might have been different. Maybe those two boys would have come from her womb and not her handmaiden's womb. But we'll never know. Waiting on God's timing always creates less personal consequences to us. Paul would put it this way when he was talking to the Corinthian believers about the two, there's two judgments that we will see at eternity. One, we will watch from the outside. It's the great white throne. That judgment is for all unbelievers who die in their sin, who will one day be resurrected from the sea, from hell, and they will be standing before a white throne in front of God alone with nobody else but them and Jesus. And the books will be opened and every thought, word, and action will be read and their judgment will be passed, and they, along with everybody else, will be cast into a lake of fire where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched, and its smoke will rise as a furnace for all eternity, as a constant reminder of the justice of God that was satisfied in Christ and rejected by each and every one of them. But there's a second judgment, and that is for believers, and that is a judgment for reward. And Paul says that all of our thoughts, attitudes, and actions will be standing before God in two categories. They will either be like gold, jewels, and precious stones. When, when they pass through the fire, they aren't, aren't consumed, they're refined, they're beautified, they're hardened, and they're purified. Or wood, hay, and stubble. And when you throw wood, hay, and stubble in a fire it gets consumed. In fact, that's how you usually start a fire. <laughs> hay with wood or hay and stubble, and then you put wood on top. And the point there is this, we will be rewarded for all of our attitudes, actions, thoughts, and everything that we do, but that reward it will be based on our heart attitude, our heart focus. And that reward is for God anyway, and for his glory anyway. And so when we wait on his timing, it will create less personal and eternal consequences. Not that I'm, and by the way, heaven is still heaven, right? 
Remember what we said, you know, when we went backwards and the lot story? That was a disaster, okay? That story is horrible. I had a hard time preaching that story. It was grievous. But the New Testament tells us Lot is righteous. And he's in heaven. And I look back at Lot's life and I'm like, is there any gold, silver, or precious stones there? Or was it all wood, hay, and stubble? So what is Lot's reward? Eternal life with God. That's all we need, by the way. And that's a great reward in and of itself. But wouldn't you rather have something to give to our great God who has given everything for us? And so waiting on God's timing always creates less personal consequences. Young people, can I tell you, God says uh, in Hebrews 13, 5, or excuse me, in Hebrews 13, uh, 2 or 3, marriage is, an, is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Adults, can I say? Hebrews 13, 2 and 3 says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. What's he saying? That any sex outside of marriage is sin. Whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, self-sexual, it's still sin. It's not honorable. But marriage and sex inside the bonds of marriage is honorable in all and undefiled. So waiting on God's timing will always create less personal consequences. And by the way, the children are in heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Don't ever blame the child for choices that are made out of wedlock if a child is given that child is precious in the sight of God. That child deserves a life and hope. And they deserve the opportunity to hear of God's love that they've already experienced, no doubt, in the womb. So don't ever blame the child for your circumstances and your choices. That's not the point. But the point is, having a child young is really difficult, isn't it? And the point is also this. I'm not standing here as a, as a condemner in the pulpit. I hope you understand that. I'm standing here as a fellow condemned in Jesus Christ, under his blood, forgiven, by the grace of God, loved. But friends, the personal consequences that come when we don't wait on God's timing can often be very difficult and totally life-altering. Don't step outside of God's plan for your life. Obey his clearly revealed word because the consequences that you will have to live with can be dire. I'll close that, that application with this point. You remember David? He's called a man after God's own heart. I can tell you why he's called a man after God's own heart. Because despite David's egregious sin, and it was egregious, David not only wasn't where he should have been when he should have been there. But he went on purpose to a place where he could lust after a handmaiden, decide that he was going to take her as his wife, even though she belonged to a wife of another. God blessed them, uh, blessed uh, the, this union with a baby. So the baby was a blessing. But, but God says this is also a consequence because this made David, instead of turning in trust to God, 
turned to his own manipulation and machination to think of how to get out of it. So he sets up this elaborate ploy to take Uriah, her wife, and put him on the front lines and have all the soldiers, his buddies, pull back so he dies in the middle of battle. What a despicable way to murder someone. And then he covers it up until Nathan the prophet says, hey, you know that lamb, that rich man had a bunch of lambs, but he went and stole the one lamb that the poor man had? You are the man. David repents. David's a man after God's own heart because he repented and he accepted the consequences of his action. What were the consequences of his actions, you might ask? Well, Absalom murdered most of his other kids after raping his daughter and trying to steal the throne from him. Just, just chew on that one for a second. Now, I realize that was Absalom's choice, but that was a consequence of David's sin. David accepted it and recognized it in humility. I earned this, but God's still merciful and loving and gracious. David was a man after God's own heart, accepted the consequences of his sin. Friends, we all have to accept the consequences of our sin, but we have a Savior who's able to overcome those consequences and bring us to glory, and we will have something to present to him by God's mercy and grace. Finally, finding our love and satisfaction in God gives us security and stability in an unstable world. Finding our love and satisfaction in God gives us security and stability in an unstable world. Listen, Leah and, and Rachel were thinking about their value as a womb. Ladies, your value is not in your womb. A womb is a precious gift of God. And having the, the ability to have children is a blessing from the Lord. But if you can't have kids, you aren't not blessed. You aren't not blessed. Yes, that's correct. God still blesses you because God wants you to find your worth in him, not in what you do. God's worth, your worth, is in what he has done for you. And friends, whether you're able to conceive or not, whether you're able to, to whether you've lost children or never had children, your value isn't in the ability to have kids. Your value is in the Lord. And when we find our love and satisfaction in God, that will give us true stability and security in this world. For those of you who have suffered the loss of children, maybe they were older children, they were born and, and died. That hurt can never be taken away. I, I know we have two little Horkabees in heaven, and even yesterday, Jen, was, Jen and I were lamenting the fact that we, uh, the one that we lost in 2012 would be um, 11 right now. Would it be fun to have an 11-year-old? But God knows that. And our, our, my wife's value isn't in her inability to have more little Horkaby babies. God's, God's faithfulness trumps all the difficult circumstances of our life. And we need to recognize what God is doing to faithfully sustain us, even in circumstances that are hard. This point, last point is quick. Rachel's developing trust in her faithful father. Um, like I told you, I, I kind of tipped my hat last time. I think Rachel does trust in God. I think her journey is a little harder because she starts out with the, with the card, the decks stacked against her. It's terrible that a pastor is using a gambling term for the pulpit. I tell you what, 
Yeah, it was for you. You guys live in Reno, so there you go. Um, no, the reality is, what's Rachel got going for her? She's absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. And she assumes that her physical appearance is going to make her something special. And God continues to reveal to her that it is him who makes her special. So as she comes in, she finally does have a son. And I didn't read the whole thing. Uh, we'd, we'd have to skip down quite a bit to get there. Um, in fact, let's just turn, let's turn to chapter 35. And this will be our final resting place. So um, I'm not, not bringing out the Joseph part, but, but in the story, did I read it already? Did I say he gave Joseph? I didn't. Did I? I didn't. Okay, 29, 22. Then God remembered Rachel, God listened to her and opened her womb and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. Rachel finally has a son in these, these baby wars. And here, the way she names her son showcases a change in her heart. She finally understands that it is God who blesses. And so what does she do? She expectantly calls him, may he add. This is not a, a bitter name. This is a, an expectant name, a hopeful name. May God add. Now, at the end of her life, um, she realizes the consequences are dire. And in chapter 35, verse 16, then they journeyed from Bethel. And, and when there was a little, about a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth. I misspoke earlier. They did go to Bethel, but they didn't make it all the way to the home. Um, Rachel labored in childbirth and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing for she died that she called his name Ben-Oni. And this name um, is not the name that eventually Jacob names her. Um, this name is son of my sorrow. That's what Ben-Oni means. But his father calls him Benjamin. This means son of the right hand. And so in, even in her passing, I believe God, God showcases her. And I, I think her sorrow is sorrow not of anger or bitterness toward God, but a sorrow that I'm not going to get to rear my son. And Jacob then calls him son of the right hand, which means a son of position, a son of strength. Now, it is very, very fitting that Benjamin and this tribe would end up owning this land. She gets buried in Bethlehem. Ephrath becomes Bethlehem. What was her, what was her uh, profession when we were introduced to her? She's a shepherdess. Who does God appear to at the birth of his precious son? To the shepherds, where? In Bethlehem. You see, God is able, even in a life of bitterness and struggle, a life that has the deck stacked, as it were, uh, in favor of selfishness and self-centeredness and thinking that I am able. In fact, it has been the, the people who have the most talents and the most gifts that often do the, le the least for God because they try to do it in their own strength. Here, God humbles Rachel, and at the end of her life, she realizes uh, God is great. 
and God is able to add. And by the way, if it weren't for her son Joseph, the Israelites would have had to be secured and saved in a totally different way. God blessed her with two tribes, um, or technically three tribes in the, in the 12. Joseph is split into two tribes or two clans by his two sons. And then Benjamin uh, ends up being the, the tribe of the first king, Saul. Okay, So there's some principles that we want to draw in conclusion from Rachel's life. Manipulation brings heartache and unintended consequences. What should be our first step when the path is unclear and the door seems to be closed? Or for you, Lord of the Rings lovers, the way is shut. We shouldn't manipulate. We should go straight to the King of Kings who knows every circumstance. Putting God first then and trusting in his providence leads to his comforting presence despite awful or painful circumstances. When we choose to put God first and trust in his providence, it will lead us to his comforting presence. As I mentioned at the beginning of the message in the introduction, God promises he will never leave you or forsake you. He promises that. He might, uh, and, and I, I had, a, a, I had a, a beautiful gift given to me, a hand uh, lettered and painted uh, poem that I actually told Kindle about it and she painted it and hand lettered it and gave it to me as a gift, Footprints in the Sand. If you ever read that poem? But the su summary of that poem is this. When times were hard and difficult looking backward, the uh, narrator of the poem looks back and says, I only saw one set of footprints in the sand. Where were you, God? That's when I needed you the most. And God enters in in the poem and he says, my child, those were the times that I was carrying you. You see, friends, when we put God first, and we trust in his promise and his providence, he will always provide comfort. Yes, your circumstances might be dire. Yes, the consequences of your sin might be great. But you have a Savior who will never leave or forsake you. He will walk beside you. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you do not have to fear evil because the ever-present, all-loving, all-good God is there with you. And finally, life lived for self with selfish ambition is hard and unhealthy. I know that seems to be an obvious, but oftentimes it's not obvious. Life lived for self with selfish ambition is hard and unhealthy. And as I conclude here, a couple of thoughts as we bring it to a conclusion, you know, Jacob could see that despite the treachery and the domestic wars, he had begun to be a people and that it was solely the work of God. There could be no other accounting for the incredible genesis of a people other than God's hand. Likewise, his prosperity rested solely upon God's blessing. Unbelieving Laban knew it, Jacob knew it, and all history would know it. His posterity was a glorious miracle. Soon Jacob would take his leave of Laban for the journey to the land, but God, again, would have to do it as we see in the text. What we have here in Jacob's life is a mini preview of redemptive history. Because Jacob's exile in Mesopotamia is a microcosm of what would happen in, in macrocosm to Israel in the later exile in Egypt. Jacob, Just as Jacob's family multiplied in his exile there in Laban's household, so the tribes of Israel would multiply to a vast multitude by the time of the exodus from Egypt. 
Just as Jacob would so prosper in his exile that Laban felt himself to be plundered, so also Israel would plunder the Egyptians in the Exodus. And just as God would have to protect and free Jacob from Laban and clear the way to the promised land, even so God would loose Israel from Pharaoh and open the way into the Canaan, into the Exodus. Yet God did that by providing the Passover lamb. When the angel, the death angel passed over, he saw the blood. And more, it was the ultimate Israel, Christ himself, who would be called out of Egypt, Matthew 2, 15. And it is Christ who affects the ultimate spiritual exodus, who calls a people who prospers their ways and leads them to the eternal land. We must never forget that the pattern for our salvation began long ago and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as we go into the Christmas season, remember, Jesus truly is the reason for this season to come. And all glory is due his name. You see, the six sons that Leah produced, of the six, Moses, Aaron, Judah, David, Solomon, and Jesus were all her descendants tribe of Levi, and the tribe of Judah. You see, what Leah saw as an unloving life of misery and infighting with her sister, God providentially calls a, a blessing because his presence will always fulfill his promise. Friends, no matter how difficult your circumstances are, whether they're your own making, sin, sinful choices, uh, or whether they are circumstances that were far beyond your making, that they were applied to you, God is able to deliver. And God, his sanctification, requires us to trust our faithful father. Are you trusting in him today? Let's pray.